This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. The impact of technology on our daily lives and careers is profound. Over the next decade, it will likely be consuming. But technology doesn't need to breed anxiety or fear. If we harness it correctly, it could be our greatest propeller of progress. I'm Kate Mills, and I'm hosting Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by engineer and startup trailblazer, Raji Ambikaraja. Raji has led a number of initiatives and businesses where technology has intersected with purpose, and she knows firsthand how society can be transformed in all the right ways when leaders with vision step up. I know you're going to get a lot out of this conversation with Raji. Start off telling me a little bit about um, the first half of your career, if you like. You worked um, in the startup industry. And I was thinking about that because the startup industry is traditionally portrayed as being quite a male environment. Is that what you found? Um, how do you think women... How do you think women work in the startup industry? Um, look, you're, you're right. It is very much so. And certainly at the time that I joined, um, very male dominated. But I'm, I'm an electrical engineer by training. I was, you know, by the time I graduated, I graduated in a, in a cohort of 200 guys. And I think there were 20 female graduates. Mm. Um, I always knew, though, as an engineer that I wanted to take the path less traveled You know, my North Star has been to make a global positive, measurable impact on the world using my problem solving capabilities as an engineer. And so everything in my entire career has been reverse engineered from that North Star. And I joined tech startups because that's where I felt I could make the most difference um, in terms of, you know, building technology to solve a whole range of problems. But um, I, I think, you know, I... Having been in a male-dominated career, uh, degree, I think I was, wasn't was too phased by the fact that, um, you know, I was in, in companies where and often in venture capital situations where I was the only female. But um, it was something that I was very much so moved to change and worked with a lot of people across, and certainly in the startup ecosystem now, there are um, right across the pipeline, there are a lot of people um, doing great things from accelerators to, you know, fellowships in, in VC firms uh, like Startmate fellowships um, to try and get more women through the industry. And it's, it's really only going to change when you have that kind of active effort uh, to 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 push the dial there. I mean, it's been talked a lot a lot about the importance of STEM and how do we bring more women into these kind of career o- options. What's your view? It's so the short answer is it is changing, but very very slowly. And the reason it's very slow is because it depends on the pipeline, even all the way back to primary and early secondary school levels. Um, if I were to take a macro view, and I, I appreciate that I have a bias as an engineer, I think um, STEM skills STEM skills are important because it allows you to be a creator and a builder, um, and those are the skills that are going to be really relevant and necessary as we move into the next couple of decades. Um, but um, in terms of why there was sort of small numbers, I think it's also to do with exposure. Um, and that comes all the way back down to the the toys even that girls play, that young girls play with versus that young boys play with. You know, um, there's that toy company Goldie Blocks that was designed very specifically to encourage more girls to think about engineering concepts while they're building dollhouses and things like that. Um, there's just sort of, there's a very gendered approach to, 
every tiny thing from childhood all the way through primary and secondary school that almost takes girls away from from those STEM-based subjects. And the other thing is I think it's the way things are taught. Maths is often taught in a very sequential way. And so when you lose a concept, so say, for example, you struggle with fractions or polynomials, you then therefore by default struggle with algebra. And it also becomes this snowball effect. And so it means that um, girls tend to sort of drop out of subjects because they sort of didn't grasp the early concepts very early on. So these are all sort of the the primary reasons as to why you end up then at the tertiary level with not many people choosing the the STEM based degrees. Mm. It's interesting because I have real first hand experience of that. I am a mother of two daughters, and when my daughter was eight, she came back over from school and just said, "I'm not very good at maths. Girls aren't very good at maths," you know. Mm. And I, I just thought at the time, I thought, "My goodness, you're only eight. You certainly yeah. don't hear that in our house." We had bought her Goldie Blocks, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting about what you can do to change that really early um, lessons that women learn or girls learn around oh, what's totally. male and what's female. Uh, I think an, it, if it changes at that primary school level and at that year seven to nine, maybe even year seven to ten, that's when you're going, if that pipeline is done really well, that's when you're going to get start to get masses of women coming through into STEM-based um, degrees. It's... Um, it's, I think, also being the only girl in the class that's good at maths or the only, I mean, I remember when I was at school, um, some of the physics classes had to be taken at the boys' school because there wasn't enough of enough girls doing the class to be able to form a full cohort. So it's, it's, it's little things like that. Um, but I think it's just, you can't teach the same way. You've got to, you've got to be able to find different modes of allowing information to be absorbed rather than having a stock standard approach of, you know, here's the theorem and here's the proof and there you go. Do you understand the concept? Um, not everyone learns that way. And that has been how maths and sometimes science has been taught. Do you think part of the answer is um, teaching girls separately, which is very common in Australia, to be fair, you know, having female-only schools and male schools? Is that part of the answer? Um, I don't know. I, I, I can't say that I have um, seen research that would advocate hugely for that because, and I think, you know, from my own experience, I, I mean, I had an all-girls um primary and secondary situation. And then obviously tertiary was the complete opposite. Um, and I don't think um, it challenges intellectually. I think it's just the way um, things are taught. So in, if you take a startup example, um, sometimes the language that's used um, to encourage or to, to sort of encourage people to join startups or to, to become a developer and, and the, the kinds of um, roles that are available aren't actually very female friendly. It's, it's very subtle. And so um, the, the ecosystem has done a lot of work in, in making the language a bit more nurturing. And I wonder if that's actually something that needs to be done. I, I think education, as I mean, this is a, a slight tangent, I think education as a whole needs to be re-looked at in terms of not having a stock standard approach and teaching everybody, um, but really looking at the modes of learning that can, you know, a lot of people learn visually as some people learn in a more um, tactile base. Um, some people are much more applied versus than theoretical um, and using all of those concepts to teach maths, science, technology, etc. I think all have to come into play. 
Mm, okay. So in your particular case, what do you think it was that helped you to cut through? I mean, like you said, it's quite interesting. You go through an all-female education effectively in, in sort of a primary school and secondary school, and then you go into electrical earring, very dominant um, male approach, and then you go into the startup industry, but you flourished. So what, what, do you th- what did you learn along the way that other people um, can take heed from? I think I flourished because I had a strong sense of my values and what my purpose was in the world. It wasn't just to create a product. I was I was always looking at the the bigger vision and I made sure that every decision I made and every action I took was true to my values. But um I guess as an engineer I have a strong analytical mind and problem solving capability and I've doubled down on that skill set and used it in a range of industries from, you know, technology to finance to nonprofit. But I think beyond that, I and now this is possibly what came out of going, going from an all-female setting to then all of a sudden all-male, was that I never allowed myself to just be complacent. Like I'm a big believer of the saying that the greatest growth occurs when you're outside your comfort zone. And so I constantly just took roles that I didn't originally have confidence that I could do and pushed myself to grow and thrive and succeed. And I've been very deliberate about unlearning habits that, didn't serve me and, and embedding new ones and and just constantly feeding my curiosity about the world through through education, like speaking to experts in fields that I knew nothing about, surrounding myself with, you know, female engineers who had trodden the path before me, um, getting in, especially in the early stages of my career, getting involved with women in engineering groups to try and understand what challenges had happened before my time and, and what had changed and what needed to change. So can you share with the audience, you know, a time when you were out of your comfort zone and what the what the learning was from it? Yeah. I mean, look, when I was um, approached by women in banking and finance to take on the chief operating officer role, I, I like, I'm good at maths, but I am, I knew nothing about finance and they're not the same thing. Um, and the language that I suppose the banking industry would have that would be bread and butter to them, it was just um, completely foreign to me. And I had to try and understand how can I use engineering thinking in an industry that, you know, I'm not talking about IT or anything. It's, that's not the space I was working in. I was really trying to think about, okay, how do you pipeline more women into um, senior leadership roles in the finance sector? And it really, through the first, oh, maybe year or so, the way I, I got through that was I, for want of a better way of saying it, I, I befriended people across the entire industry at different levels. And even the, even the CEO at the time, I would say, like, I, I don't understand the difference between institutional banking and something else. Like, can you explain this to me? And, and just being as curious as possible and gathering information until I then, once I'd done that, I was able to work out what I could, I could see things that they couldn't because they had been so embedded in the sector. I could see the gaps um, that came innately from my analytical capability to say, okay, if we address this element, we might be able to pipeline more women through, or, you know, we should do this across um, a whole range of um, companies in the sector, that kind of thing. You say there that you could see the gaps that they couldn't see. What were the gaps? What could we do more of to ensure that we get a different result with regards to female participation? Well, the gaps in that sector are very different to the gaps that exist in engineering. In finance, there was actually quite a number of, um, a substantial number, I wouldn't say 50-50, but um, a substantial number of female graduates coming out of economics and finance degrees 
um, and starting at that graduate level. So at the at the 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 bottom, I guess, of the of the career pathway in, in in finance, you had a reasonable number of women. It was just more once you got to middle management that they it was almost like a mass pipeline out, um, and a lot of it was to do. I suppose at that sort of five to seven year career mark of not understanding the opportunities forward, not understanding um, or not being able to see how their career could could um, could grow in the sector um, or in that or in particular organisations, um, not really having much of a work life balance or understanding how how they could sort of build other elements into their life and their career at the same time. Um, some wanting to step out and build fintechs um, and, and the organization, you know, not necessarily accommodating for that internally. Um, there was a whole range of things like that that really meant it was more that middle pipeline, the middle area, which meant that if you take out the entire middle and you only have a handful that then end up going on to senior roles, you, you by default will only ever have a handful in, in C-suite roles at the end. So for me, the organization before I'd started was focused a lot on that senior executive um, area. And I said, well, hang on, just go one step down and, and look at that middle section and also look at, at that junior level and, and map the pathway from junior to, to, to middle management. And then again, from middle management to senior management, because that's the only way you're going to be able to get continuity. And and did it work? Did it have impact? It did, actually. Um, at the time, we developed a career coaching program aimed at the junior to mid-level. And if I remember correctly, 40% of the par- participants of each cohort either secured a, a promotion or a senior role in their organization within 18 months of completing the program. So it really did work. The other um, thing that um, needed to happen, and this would be true across any organization, irrespective of, of industry, is there needed to be buy-in from the top. There, there needed to be a, an understanding um, that diversity of, of gender, skill set, expertise, everything, it was the only way to, it was what, what makes good business sense, basically. Um, and the organizations that had that buy-in um, were definitely more likely to succeed. Okay. So you've had that that really interesting career. You've been in technology startups. You move into a woman in banking and finance. Um, but underneath that, there's what I sense is one of your true loves, which is the education of women. And we've sort of talked, we've sort of touched on it already. Yeah. Um, worked for a long time and I think you still do as the ambassador with Room to Read. Tell me a little bit about Room to Read and what attracted you to it. So I discovered Room to Read um when I was just starting my PhD, I had worked in tech startups and I'd come back to university then to do my PhD in engineering. But I had discovered it really because I had read one of the founders of the organization had written a book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. Um, and I'd read it and I thought, oh, this this is it. This is the solution. Um, you know, education, I, I really believe if you have an educated population, then you have exactly what you need to start developing the solutions to all the problems that exist in the world. Um, But Room to Read had been very much so focused on two things, um, ensuring that there was a literate population so that they really wanted to eradicate illiteracy and also to ensure that girls were finishing high schools um, in, in the 
uh, areas that Room to Readers has been working in, low-income communities. Often girls, you know, finish primary school or they don't even get past primary school. And the, there's a huge amount of literature that shows that, you know, if you have, once you educate a girl, it, you lead to better family health, better um economic prosperity for the family for the country um a more likelihood for the next generation to be educated as well and that's how you kind of crack the cycle of poverty so um and and the way the organization was run was very much so data driven business focused like really looking at the metrics it wasn't just um a nice idea it was very much so driven to say look one day we want to not exist we want to eradicate illiteracy and make sure that every child has access to a quality education i really believed in that bold mission and so um i started by um helping to to grow the sydney branch of of the nonprofit and grew it to be the one of the biggest in the world in terms of its volunteer base outside of of the us because um, the headquarters are in San Francisco, and grew it to be the in the top five from a fundraising capacity as well. Raji, can I pick up on one thing you said there? Um, you talked about your attraction to Room to Read being about the fact that it was very data-driven and business-focused. And I think it's interesting for someone like with your background, you know, an e- electrical engineer, technology background, but moving into the not-profit, more social causes. What's the connection between the two? Are there opportunities for, for technology and tech thinking to help us solve some of those social problems? I think so. I mean, I look, I think technology has already played a role in philanthropy um, and in the nonprofit sector for the last 10 years or so in terms of, you know, something as simplistic in terms of the way that people donate. Um, and, and the, But also it's helped nonprofits to dive deep into their data and measure outcome-based progress of their programs and initiatives. Um, an example is UNICEF, who created Magic Box, which is an open source collaborative data sharing platform that informs um, life-saving humanitarian responses. And I think it's, a, from memory, it's a partnership with um, the private sector. So they've got like partners like IBM and Google, et cetera. And it takes the data from public and private sector and uses machine learning techniques to generate insights on how to use resources when you're responding to disasters or epidemics or other emergencies. Um, another example I can think of is... is um, Global Forest Watch, which uses satellite data with cloud computing to analyze data and and provide real-time information on how forests are changing around the world and how to stop illegal deforestation and fires. Um, In the case of um, Room to Read, you know, there was um, one stage in its in the growth pathway when the organization had sort of established a lot of libraries and and schools and was looking at okay well just because you have lots of libraries doesn't mean and you know you have children using them but how can you then know whether those libraries are effective and so the data helped um, look at uh, the reading and writing comprehension of the children who were using libraries and understanding, okay, how does that reading and writing comprehension change from grade one to grade two to really sh- see and, and work out what needed to be amended in terms of the effectiveness of teaching in order to make sure that those outcomes were being measured. So I think the insights that you get from data and, and technology can really be helpful in sort of propelling those social causes forward. Mm. One other thing just on this point that I picked up again from reading about you, I read how you like the combination of empathy and technology. And I just wanted you to explain a little that a little bit to me, because I think our view of technology is not one that puts empathy around technology. You know, yeah. I think we think about algorithms. I think we think about um, technology running a mock, you know, um, yeah. how, how do you combine the two? 
I think it's the difference between using technology as a tool and as a medium. And if you confuse the two or if you don't understand the difference between the two, then that's when it can go haywire. And I think when technology is used as a tool um, in sort of some of the examples I've described, then it can be really helpful. Um, it can provide insights that you don't have otherwise. Um, but if it's used as the medium of um, engagement, um there's, there's pros and cons to that. And I think, and, you know, I, I sort of uh, reflected on, on how engineering is about sort of being a creator. Um, I think one of the things that we need to look at as a society perhaps is how much are we creators and how much are we consumers? And if, you're, if we're constantly consuming the outputs of technology um, and, and sort of sitting in the noise that's the internet or the mindlessness of, of social media, then... It, it's it's like junk food, basically. It's like consuming junk food, except for the mind. And you don't necessarily then see the value of it. It just becomes something that, um, you know, can be quite detrimental. One thing I wanted to ask about is I look at your range of interests now. You know, you're a non-executive director at the Belvoir and the State Library of New South Wales. So I see sort of both education and the arts there. Um, you're involved in the Sydney School of Entrepreneurship, you know, obviously with your entrepreneurial technology business background. And also um, you're um, a non-executive director on the New South Wales Circular Economy Innovation Network. As a leader with that broad range of interests, do you, do you feel like you're in the best place now, you know, having those kind, that kind of portfolio career? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've moved from, like, it, it's never been sort of a straight line for me. Sometimes I've been very deeply immersed in one particular organization or one particular sector, and then I step out into a portfolio mode, and then I go back and deep dive into another sector, and then back into portfolio mode again. Um, portfolio mode uh, lends itself to that curiosity that I have. And, and you know, despite the fact that it seems like I have lots of things going on, there is a theme to them all. Like I, I they all sit around, as you say, um, innovation technology, which is my bread and butter, education, which is my pa uh, passion, and arts in many ways because it's the opposite of engineering and it pushes my brain differently. Um and in all of them, I bring that engineering mindset um, that is that's from a boardroom perspective. That's the that's the lens that I can bring that that capability to spot the gaps and see things differently and look at it from a, a creator's perspective. Um, I, I it, it has served me in different ways. And I think right now the portfolio mode has has really worked for me. Um, but that's not to say that you know, somewhere down the track, I might deep dive into another sector again. What do you see ahead this decade, which feels like, you know, it's a sort of critical decade. And this first year has been an incredibly critical year. What do you see ahead? And what do you hope for? Well, I mean, look, I think there's an immediate challenge for all of us. And that's to grapple with this pandemic and the effects it's created on everyone and on every aspect of life. And it's, it's presented us all with the day-to-day -day uncertainty. And while uncertainty is very uncomfortable, it also puts forward a myriad of opportunities over the decade ahead that we as, as humanity need to jump on to propel us to a future that's compelling and hopeful. Um, you know, if we look at the great work done pre-2020 to build pathways for women to take on leadership roles, every effort was to try and build equitable policies, frameworks, and opportunities for women to thrive and succeed in workplace structures that weren't originally built with them in mind. And 
as an inadvertent result of this pandemic, that workplace structure has broken down to some extent, which is a huge opportunity. And it's really important that as a society, we rebuild that structure so that it doesn't look anything like what it did before. And it's much more inclusive and reflective of the values of today's and and tomorrow's society. But um, another example is that We've been acutely aware of climate change the past few decades, but our efforts in addressing this have been slow, like the clock is ticking on us. Um, you know, I think the the pandemic, um, as we remember, came very closely after some very deadly fires in Australia. It's, it's important that we make bold decisions as individuals and as decision makers, as governments and industries. Our carbon zero targets can't be decades away. We have to be bold and change how our economy works and our habits and behaviors as a society. And there's many more challenges, um, you know, from a social, economic and political level. The greatest disservice all of us can do to ourselves and our futures is to be complacent in addressing any of these. But I think the I am seeing more people and more organizations see the opportunity um, that's coming through. And that's what makes me hopeful is that maybe this is the moment that we can grasp to make real change happen. Thanks for joining me again at the Leadership Lessons, the female perspective you need for the decade ahead. Our producer is Lisa Gebelagin. And if you like what you hear, please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and you leave us a rating. For more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au. And for more from me, join me at the next episode of Leadership Lessons. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.